right. Good morning, everyone. Good once more to be uh, together with you. Uh, here we are, last Sunday of the month of April. Weather's starting to warm up a little. Uh, we're getting outside a little bit socially distanced. We're getting outside from one another, but uh, just a pleasant time of the year that uh, we are enjoying. Uh, today, I'd like us to uh, continue our study in the book of Mark. So uh, if you have your Bibles, would you dig down in and find it? Uh, open up to Mark chapter 12, uh, where we're going to be picking up our third week now in uh, Mark chapter 12. Uh, and I, I just want to remind you a couple things before we really get going into our study today. Mark chapter 12, you recall, actually Mark chapter 11, you recall, is when uh, Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem. This is the last week of the earthly life of Jesus, his public ministry. Uh, he comes to Jerusalem. He had been traveling there for a few weeks. We've been looking at that um, for a few months together. Uh, and he finally makes his way to the city and he triumphantly enters in. That happened on the Sunday of what we call Holy Week. Uh, Jesus enters into the city on the donkey, goes up onto the Temple Mount, uh, where he sort of assesses the condition of the Jewish people and the, the Jewish religion and, and all that uh, was associated with that. The next day, Jesus returns back to the temple, and that's when he cleanses the temple. So that would have been on the Monday of Holy Week. And then Tuesday, when Jesus makes his way back to the temple once more, that's the day that Jesus begins to be questioned, as you recall. And we've looked at that now over the last few weeks with Easter in between here, where Jesus receives sort of a barrage of questions, almost one after the other from this group and then that group and then the next group. All of them seems to, seem to have been put up by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, and they all had the purpose of tripping Jesus up, getting Jesus to say something that would discredit him with the crowd, getting Jesus to say something that would put him at odds with the political officials, one way or another to, to get Jesus uh, in a trap so that he'll no longer have the influence that he was having uh, on the world at that particular time, or at least on that community. And so we saw in going back to chapter 11, verse 27, the first group comes, the Herodians, the Pharisees, and they ask Jesus, by what authority uh, are you doing the things you're doing? Who gave you the right to say the things you're saying and doing the things you're doing? And Jesus dealt with that issue. Then a few verses later, chapter 12, verse 13, and you have the Sadducees, uh, excuse me, you have that group that comes up to Jesus and says, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Uh, is it right for us to do so? Hoping Jesus say, of course not, and then get arrested. Or Jesus saying, you betcha, we love the Romans, and then the Jews hate him. And so they're trying to trap him. We saw then in verse 18, that group called the Sadducees, and they don't believe in the resurrection, yet they come sincerely to ask a question about the resurrection, and they create this absurd scenario, and Jesus deals with that issue. And then when we concluded our time together last week, that fourth person or small group of people that came to Jesus, this was the scribe. Now, Matthew alludes to the fact that he was testing Jesus, but what we know is that word testing doesn't always have to have a negative connotation. And there's an aspect of this scribe coming and asking this question about which is the greatest of the commandments, which seems quite sincere. In fact, Jesus at the end of the time commends him a bit, and he says, you're close, you're getting close. Uh, to eternal life and the kingdom of God and kind of encourages him in that. So you have these series of questions that are being asked of Jesus, most of them, if not all of them, with a negative uh, purpose, motivation behind them. As we come now to verse 35 of chapter 12, 
Jesus now asks the questions. It's his turn, if you will. You had your chance. Now let me begin to ask you some questions. And I'm going to read to you, starting in 35, just a few verses. It says, now, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? When David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Verse 37, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly, it says. So we've been looking, we've been taking notice. The Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, each one of these groups are coming with this uh, ill, this bad, poor motivation, bad motivation. They're trying to trip Jesus up. They're trying to really get him uh, in their questioning here. And what I appreciate, just real quickly, what I appreciate about the Lord is he poses a question to them with a, an entirely different purpose. And so Jesus doesn't respond in kind to those uh, that are coming against him. And so rather than Jesus returning and coming back at them and challenging them and trying to make them look silly or set them up to get them in trouble, Jesus instead is going to ask them a question which is ultimately designed for their good. He's going to ask them this question to help them in their understanding of who the Messiah is. They have a limited understanding of who the Messiah is, but they don't fully get it yet. And so Jesus then, he doesn't respond in kind. And I think that's a valuable, a valuable example for us that the Lord has given us. Because so often we are sucked into treating others by the way in which they are treating us. And so if people are disrespecting us, then, then we respond in kind and we begin to disrespect them. If people are dismissive of us, then we become dismissive of them. I'm not going to help you. You didn't help me and so on. If people treat us with sarcasm, then soon we come back at them just with this harsh and cutting attitude because that's the way they treated us. And we begin to do unto others as they are doing unto us, which is the opposite of the Christian message. And so Jesus here gives us an example. He doesn't respond in the same way and treat them the same way that they are treating him. Instead, in sincerity, he asks them a question that's going to be designed to help them in their understanding of who he is and who God's Messiah was to be. And that question, again, it starts there uh, in verse 35 or, or so. Jesus says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David when David himself, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, declared that the Lord said to my Lord? Now, Jesus in 37 really narrows it down to the question it says, David himself calls him Lord, and so how can he be, or how is he, his son? Now these religious leaders, those scribes and elders, those chief priests, those Sadducees, all those, those groups of people that came here uh, to challenge Jesus, they knew, they thought they knew everything about God's Messiah. And they certainly did know a lot about God's Messiah. Through this question, Jesus is going to challenge their understanding. He wants to broaden, he wants to broaden the scope of their understanding. You see, because it was common knowledge to the Jew that the Messiah would be the physical descendant of David. In fact, the most commonly used title for the Messiah was the son of David, as we've been seeing again and again in our studies of the scripture. 
And so based on those multiple prophecies about the Messiah being the physical descendant of David, the overwhelming majority, almost all of the Jews, they just readily accepted this idea that the Messiah would be the physical descendant of David. And what Jesus is going to do in this question is ask, well, then how can the son of David, the physical descendant of David, how can it be that David himself refers to him as Lord? And that word Lord there, you'll notice it has a capital L. It's, it's a Greek word, kurios, K-U-R-I-O-S. And it's the, the word in the Old Testament translation, Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the word that refers to Jehovah. And so David isn't just saying Lord in the sense of, uh, you know, like a high official. He's referring to Messiah as God. And so the question then is, how can David's son also be his God? How can David's son also be his Lord? He goes back to Psalm 110, a messianic psalm that was well known to the disciples, uh, to the Jewish people, uh, as well as the disciples. And you'll notice there, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I put your enemies under your footstool. The first Lord would be what we would commonly refer to as, or who we would commonly refer to as God the Father. The second Lord is a reference to the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one that would be sent from God the Father. And so David then refers to his own son, the Messiah, the son of David, as his Lord. How can that be? Now, a couple of things you need to understand. First off, in Jewish thinking, a child would never be greater than their parent. And so then the only way that a son could be greater than his father was if that son was something more than the son of his father. And that's what Jesus is getting to. That's the purpose of his question. That's what he's trying to get them to consider, to enlarge their understanding of who and what the Messiah would actually be. And so again, he asked that question, if David himself calls him Lord, how is he then his son? Now, you'll notice Jesus is not denying the fact that the Messiah would be the son of David. He's enlarging the fact, if you will. He's not only going to be the son of David, but he's also going to be God in the flesh. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get them to see it a little more deeply, that the Messiah is far more than the son of David. As magnificent as that would be. That description in and of itself, however, doesn't go far enough. And so how can the Messiah be David's son and at the same time be David's Lord? Well, he can do so because he would be both man and God. That's what Jesus is trying to get them to see. As David's son, he would be a human. But as David's Lord, he would be divine. And so we have in the question Jesus is asking, and then the, the psalm back in Psalm 110, we have here for us the mystery of the incarnation, God taking on human flesh and living uh, amongst his, his own creation and dying for his own creation. What Jesus is doing here is what he has consistently been seeking to do this last uh, 18, 15 to 18 months of his ministry, He's trying to get the Jewish people to sort of recalibrate their understanding of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah would do. Their thinking was he would come as a conquering king. Remember the questions? Oh, now are you going to overthrow uh, the Romans? You know, that's what they were expecting here. But Jesus wants to seek instead to implant the idea into their thinking that the Messiah 
would be the servant of God that he might bring men to the love of God and that he would come and ultimately die on a cross. Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, as we've been uh, repeatedly considering in our study of the book of Mark. Now, these aren't Jesus' words, but essentially what Jesus is saying is, do you understand this truth about the Messiah? Uh, that's what he's getting to. That's what he's trying to lead them to, to that place so that he can ask that question. And what we come to discover, certainly with the uh, next couple of chapters here, is those that are immediately in front of him, those religious leaders, they don't understand that. They, they continue to miss that point. Some would come to know it, and we are introduced to them later on in our study of the, the scriptures, but most of them did not. Even Jesus' closest disciples were having difficulty understanding this idea that God's Messiah would come and suffer as a servant on behalf of others. It, it just didn't jive with their thinking as much as Jesus has been attempting to get it to do so. And so Mark doesn't tell us this, but Matthew's account does go on to say that after Jesus poses that question at them, they really don't have an answer for him. They're left in this quandary. And Matthew will go on to tell us that no one dared to ask him any questions any further. Now, Mark 20, 12, 37 will tell us that there is a group of people that have come to hear Jesus. And so all of these uh, religious leaders, they come to question Jesus. But there's a great throng of individuals that come, a multitude of folks that come to listen to him there in the temple. And you recall, the Temple Mount area had a lot of different areas where people could sit down and teach others and gather to, to listen and to learn from them. And, and that's what's going on here. There's a, a multitude, a, a bunch of people that, that come. And verse 37, it really, the end of it, goes right into verse 38. So we'll read it. It says, Now the great throng heard him gladly, and in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and like their greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feast." who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. He says they will receive the greater condemnation. Why don't we all take a sip of water together? Mmm, mine was delicious. I hope yours was. Anyhow, the religious leaders are out to get Jesus. The masses of the people, they come to hear from Jesus. Such a distinction, such an interesting distinction. And so then, with an eager audience there in front of him, Jesus then takes the opportunity to warn that great throng of people against the evil influence of the religious leaders. Isn't that interesting? You, you would think the evil, interest, uh, evil influence of you know, the Satanist or the people doing this or those people over there, but it's the religious leaders that Jesus warns these individuals about. And he'll go on in these three, four verses that we just read. He, makes, he brings a series of charges against them. He's actually going to bring five different charges against them. And he warns the people that they should be on their guard against the religious leaders. And so quickly looking, the first is he, he says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in their long robes and receive the deferential greetings in the marketplaces. A little later, he says, beware of the scribes who like to have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at their feast. 
And then he goes on and he says, and beware of the scribes who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make their long spiritual sounding prayers. And then the last of the things that Jesus said would have shocked his listeners. He says, they will receive the greater condemnation. Now, I'll remind you, the scribes that Jesus warns us to beware of, they were the the Bible scholars of Jesus' day. The, The scribes were the ones that were entrusted with preserving and with learning and then ultimately with teaching the word of God. And so these are the ones who it was presumed knew God and knew his word better than anybody else. And thus, they must be the ones that are the closest to God. And yet, notice what Jesus says. He says, beware of them. And then he says, they're going to receive the greater condemnation. Now, the basic summary of what Jesus is warning is that we should watch out for those religious leaders who make a great show of their religion, yet all the while they're looking to devour others for their own gain. If you sum all of it up, that's that's generally the message Jesus is giving us. And amazingly, here we are 2,000 years later, and that same sort of uh, charlatanry continues into our day as well. Fakes, liars, deceivers, people using a religious position for their own personal gain. And Jesus warns them, and those warnings are not just for his first century listeners, but they're his warnings for us as well. These scribes, these religious leaders, they should have been the people that the mass of people would go to that they could trust. Instead, Jesus says, no, you need to beware of them. And he warns them. And he's warning us that we should take notice of not only what religious leaders say, and certainly the things that religious leaders teach is so very important. Paul, or excuse me, in the book of Acts, chapter 17, yeah, it is Paul, Paul tells us that we should be Bereans. The people of Berea, they were more noble than the others because they searched the scripture to see if the things that what the teacher was saying were actually true. And so the teaching and the, me- the words that come out and the message that comes forth from a religious leader is so very important, certainly. But that's not the only thing that is important. What Jesus is pointing out here, it's not just what the religious leaders are saying and what they're teaching, but what they're doing as well. And so he calls attention to a number of different things here. Paul the Apostle did the same thing. In the book of Philippians, Paul the Apostle exhorted those that he was teaching to look at him and to look at others that were in ministry like him and to follow them as an example. He said, we are to be a model for you to look at. In another place, he said this. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so spiritual leaders should be observed just as much, if not more, as they should be listened to. And so with that, let's take a little bit of a closer look into what Jesus is telling uh, his crowd there that's listening to him of what they should be aware of. Again, the first thing that he said is, beware of the scribe, because they like to walk around in their long robes. Now, in that day, just about all of the men and women, they, they would have wore a robe of some sorts. Now, a long robe, one that extended all the way down to the ground, that was a sign of a notable person in society. A long robe, it was the kind of garment that essentially prevented a person from really hurrying along or 
um, physically exerting themselves in their labor or whatever it may be. And so a person that had a long robe, that became sort of the sign of a person that was living a leisured life that a man of honor might live. Long robes, they distinguish people, those that wore those long robes, if you will, to use a somewhat modern term, they became a man of the cloth of society. And that long robe that they wore, it served that they were in a special class of individuals and that they were worthy of recognition for being in that class, recognition that the common man, the average person, was not worthy of. And so Jesus says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in their long robes. It wasn't necessarily a problem that they wore a long robe, uh, but they liked it because people honored them when they did. People looked over at them when they did. People thought differently of them because they did. Secondly, Jesus said, beware of the scribes because they love their greetings in the marketplace. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that these people liked it when people said hi to them or when people wish them well. There's nothing wrong with that. And so, yeah, I like it when people said, hey, how you doing? I like that too. So, but that's not what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is referring to the fact that they liked it when people used the high-sounding titles to greet them. And they were expected to use those high-sounding titles. What Jesus is getting at is they liked it when people called them rabbi or pastor or most holy reverend or any other title that religious leaders in our day and throughout history have dreamed up for themselves. These scribes, they liked when people used those titles. It's interesting to note the word rabbi, it's come to mean essentially teacher. Uh, that's kind of how we translate it. But sort of in its original meaning, what it literally meant, rabbi literally meant my great one. And so these scribes, they took great delight in having people call out greetings to them as the great one. Excuse me, Mr. Great One. Yes, how can I help you? They just enjoyed it. They loved it. And it stroked their ego. And it's no doubt, part of the reason, no doubt, that they wore those long robes is so people would know how to refer to them and thus stroke their ego a little further here. So Jesus says, beware of them because they love the greetings in the marketplace. He goes on a third time and he issues a third warning. He says, beware of the scribes because they love the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feast. Now, you, you should know this. Uh, some churches continue to do it this way. I don't think they should. We don't do it, certainly at Calvary. But some churches continue to do so. And uh, What they would do in the Jewish synagogue, in the front of the Jewish synagogue, it was basically rectangled in shape. Up in the front, there would have been what was called an ark or a box, um, like the Ark of the Covenant, a box that was up in the front of the synagogue. And inside of that box was kept the handwritten copies of the, the synagogue Torah, um, the Old Testament scriptures. And every synagogue, and I, I went and I checked this again, every synagogue had to have a copy of the Torah. And so they would keep this, you know, big old um, piece of the scriptures, they, or the scriptures, they would keep it right there in that box. Then in front of that box, there would be a bench. And then in front of that bench would be the place where whoever it was that was speaking that day would stand. And so the audience would be sort of out and about, then the person speaking, then this bench, then the ark. Now on that bench would be the place where people would sit that were people of honor. They would take those particular seats. They are the religious dignitaries 
of that community or of that particular synagogue. And because they're right behind the person that is speaking and they're right there in front of the sacred Torah, which they would have a ceremony to bring out so that it could be read, these were the best seats because they allowed for everyone to take notice of them <coughs> throughout the service there. They got to sit at all times in full view of the admiring congregation. Wow, look at those people. They must be so important. Similarly, at the feast, the seating arrangements, much like maybe the way we have seating arrangements at a wedding. And so you come in and you essentially see uh, how much the people like you. If you're at table one, then you're, they, they're a big fan of you. If you're at table 22, uh, you're just happy to have made it to the wedding, I guess. Um, well, that's how they, they determine seating essentially there as well. And so the first place of honor was to the right of the host of that particular feast. The second place of honor was to his left. The third place was the second person to the right. The fourth, the second person to the left, and so on and so forth as you go around the table or down to the sides of the table. And so if you went walking into a, a feast of some sorts, you would immediately know uh, who were the people of honor at those particular feasts based on where they would be seated. And Jesus says, beware of the scribes, because they love the best seats in the synagogue, and they love the places of honor at the feast. And they thought they deserved it. And they loved it when people uh, took notice of it. What we're seeing is these scribes, they loved to put on this show, a wonderful show of their religiosity. We're so religious. We're so important. Everybody notice us. But inwardly, they were proud which is a sin. Inwardly, they were proud. Inwardly, they were greedy or covetous. Inwardly, they were insincere. They put on a veneer that everyone honors and respects, but inwardly, they were very far from God. You'll notice Jesus goes on and he issues a fourth warning against the scribes. He says, beware of the scribes because they devour widows' houses. One way or another, through flattery of some sort, through manipulation, they would wrangle these big gifts from those almost certainly that could least afford to give those gifts, such as the widows. And you think of the widows, you think of the orphans, you think of the vulnerable of a society. Above all others, they should have been the objects of the scribes' compassion and prayers and support, and instead the religious leaders devoured them of their resources. They took advantage of them. And you have to ask yourself in that circumstance, who is serving whom in the relationship? Are the sheep serving the shepherd? Or is the shepherd serving the sheep? And the scribes, as with many, many religious leaders, even unto our day, they saw their position as an opportunity for they themselves to be served, rather than for the way in which they might be a blessing to other people. And they took advantage of these widows. And finally, Jesus says one more thing. He says, beware of the scribes because for pretense, they make long prayers. Same root of the word pretense is the word pretend. And that's what they would do. They'd pretend to have a great relationship with God. And yet, sadly, their relationship with God was far more show than substance at all. These guys, they say their long prayers and they use their big fancy words and all those kinds of things, and they portray an appearance of great godliness, but in reality, it was all a show. One commentator I read, he said, their prayers were not so much offered to God as they were offered to men. 
the idea being to impress men. And to use a word I used earlier, they're charlatans. And Jesus says of them, they will receive the greater condemnation because they had all the knowledge in the world of the things of God, but they didn't apply that knowledge into their own lives. And so Jesus says, much has been given to you, much is required of you. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he never spoke a harsher set of words to a person or group than he did to these people, these religious leaders. And he tells his listeners to beware of them. And so we are to beware of them. We are to beware of religious leaders that see their position as a place where they can be served rather than as a place from which they can serve. And so I want to encourage you, look, if you're, if you're a person in spiritual leadership in the lives of other people, uh, maybe officially or just sort of unofficially, you're kind of a volunteer or whatever it may be, maybe it's formally or informally, take heed lest you become like those that Jesus so sternly warned against. And if you're a person that is following spiritual leaders, listen not only to what they say, but observe the lives that they live. Because spiritual leaders are to be an example, as Paul said, we are a model and an example for you to follow. Well, moving on, let's go on to verse 41. I'll take another sip of water here. Ooh, yummy. You can take a sip of whatever you have this morning. All right, continuing on. Verse 41, it says, now he sat down opposite the treasury, he being Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury, and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums of money, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Now let me just remind you a little bit of the layout of the Temple Mount area. Uh, remember, the Temple Mount area was a series of courtyards. Most of the Temple Mount area was open air, outside, and then there was the structure, which uh, consisted of the holy place and the most holy place. But much of the area was courtyards, and the, the outer courtyard was the court of the Gentiles. The next courtyard closest to the, the structure of the building what was what was called uh, the court of women. And the court of women is where both Jewish men and Jewish women could go. And scattered throughout that courtyard, there were 13 different offering boxes, or to use the term here, the treasuries. 13 different places where a person could go and they could bring their offering, which would be used in support of the, the ministry there at the temple, the priests that served there in the temple, and then used to support the poor of the community as well. And so scattered throughout then you have these uh, offering boxes. And what Mark tells us is that somewhere near one of those boxes, Jesus sat down and it says he began to watch the people put the money in. I don't think he sat right next to it. I think he sat off on the side and he just observed, a silent observer, not drawing any attention one way or the other to himself or even initially to those that are uh, making an offering. The word watched that is used there in verse 41, it's an interesting word. It, it goes beyond just sort of a, you know, a passing glance. You know, the whole bunch of people that kind of came, I, I took notice of them, but not too much notice. It, the word watched means he carefully studied. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's carefully studying the individuals that are bringing their uh, offering and placing it there in those offering boxes. 
Now, I'm reading the ESV. I read it uh, just a moment ago to you. And I think in this instance, the ESV misses an opportunity here uh, to, to really catch what Mark is trying to point out. I think the King James Version, the New King James Version, other versions uh, like that, they pick up what Mark is trying to communicate to us because they'll say, and they'll include the important word, how. Mark 12.41, according to the New King James, says, Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And I think the context of our, our story here will go on to explain why it's so important that that word how be included. Because Jesus isn't studying how much the people put into the offering boxes, but rather the manner in which they put money into the offering boxes. And it's so very important that we catch that. Otherwise, I think we miss the point of uh, this scenario here. Mark points out that as Jesus sat there, initially many rich people come putting in large sums of money. You see that in verse 41. And then he draws the contrast in the next verse, and he says, and a poor widow also came who put in two small copper coins. Two small copper coins, he'll go on to tell us they make a penny. In actuality, they make about a penny, less than a penny. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Mark draws our attention to these two events that are side by side in his writing. Because in the one event, in verses 38 to 40, you have the scribes that are proud and that are greedy, and the rich people that come and uh, they make their large offerings and so on, and then you have this widow. The very ones that the scribes were seeking to devour, you have this widow come, and in humility, she brings her two small copper coins. Mark tells us Jesus took notice. He took notice of the way the very wealthy gave, and he took notice of how this poor widow gave. And he calls his disciples. He doesn't call her necessarily. He doesn't bring her front and center and said, I want everybody's attention. She perhaps just dropped it in and went on her way. Doesn't know anything that anybody took notice of. But Jesus calls his disciples. And he uses this as a teaching opportunity. He calls them to his side. And he says to them, he says, you see that woman over there that's, that's heading out of the temple? Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all the rest combined. Now Jesus, you'll notice, and, and I've added a few words there, he didn't say that she put in more than anybody else. He said that she put in more than all of them put together. That's the idea that's being communicated. They put in large subs of money, but she, with her two copper coins, put in more than all of them put together. Now, how can that be? How can it be? Because in 41, we read that many rich people put in large sums of money, and then this woman, she put in two coins, they're called leptons, and literally the word means a thin one. They were two of the smallest of the coins of the day. They were made up of such a thin piece of copper that it was said that if you held them in your hand and the wind blew, the wind would blow them out of your hand. It's almost like they're paper. And she puts in these two little small copper coins, and Jesus says her tiny contribution was greater than all of the others. And how, again, how can that be? Well, the answer goes back to that idea, that word, how the people gave, the manner in which the people gave, the motivation behind the offering that they brought. The wealthy, they gave their large sums of money 
but they did so in a way that would draw attention to themselves. They waited, no doubt, or likely, or possibly, to the busiest time of the day, when the most set of eyes could be upon them. And that's when they made their procession up to the money box. I don't know if it, it went down this particular way, but rather than dropping in a couple of bills or maybe a check that would silently enter into the money box, they went down to the bank that morning and they got a big old bag of coins. And then they proceed up to the front of the treasury and they slowly dump in that bag of coins so that each coin would clink and clatter on its way down to the bottom of that offering box so that they could draw attention to themselves. By contrast, this woman seeks to slip in and then slip back out unnoticed, discreet as she can be. Going on to verse 44, we see that Jesus gives us a second reason why her giving was greater than all the rest, and it's because she contributed, they contributed, it says, out of their abundance, but she, it says, put in everything she had to live on. The others gave a lot of money, but they gave what they could easily spare while still having plenty left over for themselves. The widow, it says, put in everything she had. Theirs, we could say, was a contribution. Hers was a sacrificial act of worship. And so we see then here this lesson that the, the means by which, it's the means by which the Lord determines the value of a gift. Now we, the way we determine the value of a gift is based on the monetary value of the gift. Was the giving substantial enough? Did it qualify to join the bronze club, the silver club? Was it high enough to be a member of the uh, gold club and to get your name put up on a wall so everyone knows how much you gave? That's how we determine the value, sadly, so often of a gift, by the monetary amount that was given. But you'll notice the Lord's method of determining the value of the gift then and now continues to be, it's based on the level of sacrifice that is required to make that gift. And so the wealthy in our account, they gave out of their wealth. But this poor woman, she gave out of her poverty. And the Lord measured their giving, not by the amount that they gave, but in reality by what they kept back for themselves. And this widow literally kept nothing back, as 44 says, for herself. She's the only person in the Gospels whose monetary gift Jesus took notice of, which I think should serve as a great encouragement to any of us that have little of this world's resources. Because while others may have given gifts of great monetary value, it was her gift, even though it was of small monetary value, that the Lord commended. Jesus takes notice not of the size of the gift, but of the motive behind the gift. And this woman, she wanted to worship the Lord with her giving, and she refused to allow the fact that because she had so little that her gift wouldn't be worth it. Why bother? What are they going to do with that anyway? And Jesus takes notice of it. He takes notice of the size of her heart, not the size of her contribution. Now, frankly, here at Calvary, we don't talk a lot about, uh, about money and giving and things like that here. And we don't do so primarily by design because the reality is too many churches spend too much time on talking about giving and how you should give a little more and so on and so forth. That being said, when the Bible talks about it, and we go verse by verse through the Bible here, when the Bible talks about it, we talk about it. 
And so this morning, we have an instance here uh, that we can learn some valuable lessons about giving from this passage. And I see four things here. First, I see this. Jesus is more concerned. I've said this, um, sort of summarizing here. Jesus is more concerned with the motivation behind the gift than he is with the size of the gift. And so if you're giving with the wrong motivation, if you're giving from a place of pride, because we, you want others to know how much money you have and how much money you can spare. If you're giving because you're looking to be acknowledged by others. I want to get my name up on that wall so everyone will see how spiritual I am. If you're giving to get, which a lot of people now um, are peddling, quite frankly. Uh, you give your money to God and he's going to return it back to you a hundredfold and, and so on and so forth. And so people give their offerings because they just want ten times, a hundred times more money in their bank account. If that's your motivation for giving, quite frankly, then you may as well stop giving. Because in the eyes of the Lord, the amount of your gift will never outweigh the motivation behind your gift. Second thing we learn that is this, that Jesus' commendation of the gift it teaches us it's determined not by how much one gives, but quite honestly, how much one keeps back. Because real worshipful giving that is noticed by the Lord, it must be sacrificial. <coughs> if you look at her, there was a certain recklessness in this woman's giving. I mean, prudence would have told her, keep some of it, one of them, keep some of it back for yourself, keep all of it back for yourself. And yet this woman desired to worship the Lord in this particular way, and so she brings it all. She kept nothing back. King David taught us that we should never give to the Lord that which cost us nothing. We read that in 2 Samuel chapter 24. And this woman's gift was quite costly to her. Third thing we learn is this. Despite what you hear from the television preachers, Jesus' response to the gift made by the woman compared with all the others, it shows us that God doesn't actually need our money. That if God needed our money, then the amount that was given would have been more important than the manner in which it was given. And yet in this passage, we see just the opposite. And so we give not because God needs our funds and those pity parties that some preachers will put out there but we, we give because we need to give of our funds. Giving is as much about the work that is being done in us as it is about what those funds are going to go on and be used for. God doesn't need our giving. And finally, this last point, by drawing attention to this woman, by drawing attention to her giving, Jesus teaches us this such important lesson that any gift no matter the size, if given with the right motivation, does not go unnoticed by the Lord. Now, there is a mindset. I'm sure many of us have, uh, have had this mindset. Maybe when we were younger and not established in a job or something of that nature, or maybe we were going through some hard times. Uh, the mindset is, you know what, I'm going to give when I have a little more to give. I'm going to give when my, my gift could actually make an impact here. This woman challenges that mindset. Because in reality, she had virtually nothing of which to give, and yet she made her way to the temple to give unto the work of the Lord. And she did not allow her limited resources. And you can use this not only in your financial giving, but your abilities, for instance, that you give unto the Lord in service. She didn't allow her limited abilities to keep her from presenting her gifts to God for his use. And that's a valuable lesson 
for each of us. And so today, as we have made our way through uh, sort of the rest of this, these Tuesday interactions that Jesus had that day, we see the heart of the Lord, not to come back in kind and mistreat the people that were mistreating him. We see the warning of the Lord to be on our guard against those that abuse uh, spiritual positions, to stroke their own ego, uh, and to satiate their greed. And then we see the heart of this sweet, poor widow that just wants to worship the Lord with everything she has and doesn't want to keep anything back in her worship from the Lord and how the Lord commends her for that. And so my prayer is, we're going to uh, continue in a time of worship here, but my prayer is that the Lord would use these things that we've considered today to really speak into the deep places of our hearts, to allow God to really just shine sort of this spotlight on where we are with him and, and sort of what are the motivating factors that are operating within us. And when, then when he does expose it, that encourage we might bring those to him and say, you know what, Lord, I leave this here, do a work within me. That's what God desires to do. He wants his word to shine a light on our lives so that he might transform us uh, in an even greater way into the image of his son. And so with that, let me go to a time of prayer. We'll have some worship, and then I'll come back and I'll share a scripture with you as we close out our time together this morning. Father, we thank you for uh, these things that we've considered. We thank you for your precious holy word. Lord, which uh, was preserved through the ages that we might come and gather and sit under it and learn from it. And so we thank you for the things we've considered today. Lord, I pray that you would use your word, Lord, to expose uh, even the deepest places of our hearts, that we might enter into your presence and that you might reveal things that we needed to learn or maybe things we needed to relearn, things we need to know. Lord, so that we can be transformed to the image of your Son. And so bless the going forth of your word, we ask in Jesus' name.